The Word of God is good, it is powerful, and thank God it's true. Through its proclamation, God works to open our eyes to his perfect will and truth. May God continue to bless the preaching of his holy word today. As many of you know, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you'll know that we are marching our way through the book of Mark. Uh, Today is going to be our last sermon of the year in Mark. Not the last sermon of the year, last sermon of the year in Mark. Uh, We are finishing out Mark chapter 10. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 46 through 52. Mark 10, 46 through 52. Once you turn there, and out of honor for God's word, if you are able, please stand for the reading of our text. Follow along with me, verse 46 and on. Mark writes, And they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said to him, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him along the way. May God continue to bless the preaching and hearing of his word. You may be seated. Before we get into examining our text in any depth, I want to begin by making some some observations about our text. Although this uh, this is a rather short passage, especially in light of some of the passages we've covered on Sunday mornings, it's, it's only seven verses. It's short, but it is packed full. Uh, actually, I was talking with Krista this week as I was preparing. I had two weeks to prepare for this. Actually, three, no, two weeks to prepare for this. One of them was spe- spent at the uh, pastor's conference, but it was mulling in the back of my mind. And I had about four different directions I was going to take this sermon you get one of them. So uh, just know that there's four other sermons in this text. So you have your work cut out for you as you dig into the word on your own. Many of the observations I want to make are in themselves deep wells. Deep wells that that you should, uh, if you desire, you should plumb the depths of. 
On the other hand, there are several observations that will help us set the context for our discussion this morning. So, first, some observations on the overall literary structure of Mark. I can't help it, right? I can't help. I'm a teacher at heart. Um, I had a whole sermon planned where we were, I was going to teach you all about Mark and Bartimaeus and Jericho and the Middle East and Israel and geography. It was going to be awesome. But uh, that's not a sermon, so I changed that plan. We are going to spend some time looking at the literary structure of Mark. I actually uh, was working on a chart, and uh, unfortunately, our PowerPoint doesn't, it, it was going to be too big, so I, I didn't include it, but imagine, imagine, if you will, the literary structure of Mark. Today's passage, Mark 10, 46 through 52, not only includes chapter 10, or concludes chapter 10 in Mark's gospel, but it is the last scene of what we have been calling or referring to as act two of Mark's three-act drama, right? Act two of Mark's three-act drama, the drama of the unfolding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Mark's opening line puts it for us. So the structure goes something like this. It begins with a prologue, verses 1 through 13, and then from 14 to chapter 8, verse 22, is Act 1. Act 1 revolves around the question, as we have talked about, the question of, who is Jesus? Who exactly is Jesus? He's different. He's unlike any other person the world has seen. But who is he? Who is he? Act 1 follows Jesus as he teaches. He heals. He performs signs and wonders and miracles. And he calls 12 men to be his disciples. All of Act 1 takes place geographically in and around Galilee in northern Israel. Act 2 opens with Jesus healing a blind man in Bethsaida. As Jesus begins his journey from the region of Galilee, Jesus begins his journey down south to Jerusalem. The question of Act 1, who is Jesus, is answered in Act 2 by Peter's great confession. You are the Christ. However, as we considered, even Peter, even Peter, perhaps the disciple closest to Jesus, at least in Mark's gospel, doesn't fully understand the implications of his confession. For Jesus immediately rebukes Peter. And then on three separate occasions, he explicitly teaches the disciples that he must, he must suffer, die and rise again. Not at all what the disciples are expecting, anticipating, or even looking for. So much of Acts 2 is Jesus preparing his disciples for his coming suffering and death, as well as teaching them the true nature of the cost of discipleship. Jesus' triumph will appear to them as his apparent defeat. His victory is his death. His glory will be his shame. And his coronation as king, as we will see after the new year, 
His coronation as king will be on a cross. Naturally. His disciples have a hard time understanding this. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, so do we. We struggle with this too, even on the other side of the cross. Acts 2, or Act 2 ends with uh, the story that we are looking at today, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. This means Act 2 opens with the story of Jesus healing a blind man in Bethsaida and ends with Jesus healing another man here just outside of Jericho. As a side note, there are several other correlating. I have a whole, if you ever want it, I have a whole chart correlating the the parallels and contrasting the differences between these two healings, and it is phenomenal. They are meant to be seen together, right? They are bookends for the entirety of Act 2, and they're not just interesting, they're not just literary markers, but they're meant to teach us about what Act 2 is all about. They're a living parable, if you will, of what Act 2 is all about. And that is discipleship. What does it mean to follow a crucified Christ? Second, some observations specific to our text today. It's interesting to note that the final healing story uh, in Mark's in Mark's gospel is the story that we're looking at today. This is the last time Jesus heals someone in Mark's gospel. It's not only the last healing story, but it's also the last miracle that Jesus performs in Mark's gospel. Scholars have long noticed this is the only healing story in which the person being healed is named Bartimaeus. Mark gives us his name. Curious. Curious. This is not just in Mark's gospel, but actually in all three synoptic gospels, people that Jesus healed, Bartimaeus is the only one that is named personally. Mark gives us the blind man's name, but he also tells us not only the blind man's name, but the blind man's father's name, Timaeus. Actually, interestingly enough, Uh, And Mark, of course, is writing to a Roman audience. And as he does that, he says his name is Bartimaeus. Well, in Aramaic, that literally means son of Timaeus. He says Bartimaeus, which if you were Aramaic, you'd say, oh, son of Timaeus. And then in Greek, he says that is the son of Timaeus because he's writing to a Roman audience. In other words, Mark wants to make crystal clear that we know who this blind man is that Jesus heals. Why? Well, well, we'll talk about that. For being in Act 2, Act two it's strange that Jesus' disciples, I don't know if you picked this up as we were reading the text moments ago, but Jesus' disciples are nearly invisible in this, this passage. They are only mentioned once in verse 46, and after that, it's, it's like they... they disappear. They, they fade into the crowd and their identity becomes one with the crowd. They're not mentioned anymore and the crowd is only mentioned. Curious, especially in light of Act 2's focus on discipleship. Finally, or no more, our passage is the first and only time in Mark's gospel where Jesus is addressed as the son of David. 
verses 47 and 48. Stranger still is the fact that this is the first time someone identifies Jesus with a messianic title, son of David, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus says nothing. He doesn't say, you need to be quiet. He doesn't say, silence, like he says to the demons. He doesn't prevent Bartimaeus from not speaking this again. Jesus seems to simply receive it, which is unusual. It's out of character for Jesus in Mark's gospel. Curious. Certainly, there are many more observations we can make, and we will make some more of them. But for time's sake, let's turn our attention to unpacking this very unique text. Verse 46 identifies three characters to this story. There's Jesus, the crowd, which includes his disciples, and blind Bartimaeus. Three characters, three perspectives. The perspective of each of these characters is unique in the story. So I want to approach our text today by considering the vantage point of each of these three characters. So that leads me to my proposition. Proposition is this. True disciples must have eyes to perceive the kingdom. True disciples must have eyes to perceive the kingdom. Sounds like a no-brainer, right? Uh, Well, we'd have to look at the the 12 disciples and wonder. So first, we're going to consider the perspective of Jesus's, or Jesus's perspective as he walks through, as Mark walks us through this narrative. So my first point is this. We perceive the kingdom through eyes of obedience. We perceive the kingdom through eyes of obedience. In verse 46, Mark notes, they came to Jericho. We already noted in Act 1 of Mark's gospel uh, that Act 1 is primarily geographically located in northern Israel around the region of Galilee. However, the setting of Act 2 occurs in Mark's terms, and this is important, it occurs along the way right, along the way, that becomes almost a technical term. You can think about it in terms of the book of Acts and how Acts treats the way. Disciples of Jesus, also known as Christians, were also referred to as followers of the way, right? So this is the way that Jesus is moving. He's moving towards, he's on the road, on the journey towards Jerusalem. And all of Act 2 is... is taking place along that journey as Jesus heads to Jerusalem. Luke says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem. Luke says this two times. Chapter 9, verse 51 and 53. Perhaps Luke is thinking in this moment that this, this imagery of Jesus turning his face to Jerusalem. Perhaps he's thinking of Isaiah's suffering servant, who in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, set his face like flint, even though he was opposed, towards the difficult task ahead of him. Mark has also noted, with awe, the fixed determined deportment of Jesus. Back in verse 32, Mark observes, And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. 
right? Trent preached on this. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Who? Ahead of his disciples. So they're on the, the way. Jesus is walking ahead of them, and Mark makes a fascinating observation. He says, and they were amazed. Jesus is simply walking before them, but his disciples, Mark says, and points out, they were amazed. Not only that, but those who followed were not just amazed, they were afraid. The disciples were amazed, and the crowd was afraid. It's like something has switched on in Jesus, and his gaze, his thoughts, and will are fixed on, transfixed on Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. Nothing is going to stop him as he heads to Jerusalem. In other words, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is out of character. He's no longer strolling from village to village, seemingly aimless at times as he was in Act 1 of Mark. Now Jesus is locked in. He's dialed in. And with all the force of his human determination... He's exerting himself towards Jerusalem. Look again at verse 46. Mark says, they came to Jericho. Jericho is not an insignificant city in the first century, right? It's it's a major city of Israel. They come to Jerusalem. If if you've been reading Mark's gospel at this point, you, you know what would come next. But we keep reading. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho, curious, in Act 1, Jesus would have stopped in Jericho. He he would have taught. He would have healed the sick and performed signs or wonders and probably gotten in a little bit of a tiff with the pious, self-righteous, religious leaders, and Peter would have said something stupid, as Peter does. But here, at the end of Act 2, Mark simply says, Jesus arrived in Jericho, period, end of sentence. Next sentence, and he was leaving. He arrives and he leaves immediately. No details, no further information. It's like Jesus' entire ministry focus has been reoriented towards heading to Jerusalem. Remember in Mark's gospel, we have not yet seen Jesus in Jerusalem. Mark doesn't tell us about any other trips that Jesus makes to Jerusalem. He excludes those because we know In the other synoptic gospels and in John's gospel, Jesus actually makes several trips throughout his ministry to Jerusalem. But Mark excludes those to focus on this one final journey to Jerusalem. Why is Jesus so determined? What is it that he sees? What is it that he's looking forward to, that he's looking at, that he's gazing, that he's fixed on in Jerusalem? Well, let's take a moment to understand and develop Jesus' perspective. John, the Apostle John, opens his gospel account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, John 1, 1 and 2. As the Word of God, Jesus was with the Father at the beginning. In fact, John goes on to note, not only was the word of God there at the beginning, but all things, everything 
and John is emphatic, anything that has been created was created by him, and anything that's not created wasn't made by him. Just so that we're crystal clear, everything was created by the word of God. This certainly includes the pinnacle of God's creation, humanity, humanity. God created humanity for himself and in relationship with himself. Think about this. The word of God was there when the triune God took counsel with himself in Genesis 1.26 saying, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. The word of God spoke the warning to Adam in the garden in Genesis 2.17, warning Adam, but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Or in Hebrew, you will die, die. The living word of God was there when the first couple exchanged the truth for a lie and ate the forbidden fruit. The word of God was there when the heart of the triune God broke over humanity's choice of death over life and hatred of God over the love of God. It was the word of God that was spoken to the guilty pair, hidden, hiding themselves, concealing themselves away from God in the garden. And the word of God spoke, where are you? Where are you? In a call to repentance. It was the word of God that damned the wicked serpent and promised his defeat under the foot of a promised seed of the woman. It was through the word of God that the Lord bound himself to humanity through covenants with Noah, Abraham, and Moses. It was by the word of God that the Lord covenanted with David, king of Jerusalem, promising him a seed, an offspring, a son, whom God, on whom God's abiding love would not depart, and to whom the triune God would establish an eternal throne, defeating and subduing all the enemies of the people of God. And as the Apostle John points out, it is the very same word of God who enfleshed himself to dwell among us. Therefore, it is now here in Mark's gospel, the very word of God who sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem to fulfill all the long-awaited promises, to fulfill all of them, centuries, millennia of waiting because it had been broken by man's sinfulness. Sometimes I, I know I can wrestle with the reality of sin and it not being weighty enough in my life. And then other times it's like sin uh, slams into me. Right? And, and, and I feel the weight. I feel the pressure. I feel the decay, the pain, the hurt, the depravity of sin and I hate it and my heart breaks as I see sin infecting and affecting the lives of others but then we must remember that it's not our hearts that truly break over sin it was God's heart in the garden it was God's heart that was broken because of our rejection of him we were created for Him. And we turned. More than that. We rebelled. More than that. We set ourselves up as enemies of God. 
the ones he had set his affection on, has become his greatest enemies. We exchanged the, the truth of God, relation, intimacy with God for a lie of self-exaltation. And we ruined everything. And it's God's heart that was broken. Redemption, we cannot be confused. Redemption is not primarily about us. Redemption is about him because it is his heart that was broken at the fall. It's his promises that he's going to restore and make new what was once broken. It's his promises. And yes, we long for the day when we see him face to face. But Jesus was looking towards Jerusalem in anticipation of the day of the Lord that would come when God's mercy and wrath would, would pour out together in perfect harmony on the cross. The promise of reconciliation. The tension of the day you eat of it, you will surely die is reconciled with the reality of we were made to be at peace with God. We were made to be reconciled to God. His wrath is poured out. In the day you eat of it, death is inaugurated in Adam. But Jesus is looking forward to. His face is transfixed to the consummation of the fall, the death, the promise of death in Adam at the cross. That's what Jesus is staring at. That's why Jesus is transfixed on getting to Jerusalem. He will get there and nothing will stop him. His determination is palatable. It causes fear and amazement. Jesus is set. His course is sure. What is Jesus' perspective? Why was his face set like flint towards Jerusalem? Because he was jealous for God's glory. To be revealed in the power of God as God's wrath and mercy converged at the cross. Death promised in 2.17 would be satisfied in Christ on that small hill outside the gates of Jerusalem. And God's glory and wisdom and power were to be most cl uh, clearly revealed. And Jesus' face was set on Jerusalem because he was jealous for the glory of God to be made manifest. Yes, Jesus knew what, what lied ahead. But as Paul wrote in, Jesus was aware of this suffering, but as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul writes, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. They don't have substance. But the things that are seen, those are the things that have substance. For they remain. They abide. They are eternal. You can lay hold of them and know for certain you will not be disappointed. Your grip will not fail you. Because the eternal things are those things founded in the living God. 
So Jesus' face was fixed on Jerusalem, jealous for the glory of God to be manifested, the crushing of the serpent's head, and the remaking of an incorruptible, an incorruptible new creation. This was the kingdom Jesus was seeking to bring. The kingdom his disciples could not yet see, nor understand. A kingdom wrought through the bloody obedience of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the very Word of God. Therefore, Jesus' perspective was seen through the eyes of obedience. To perceive the kingdom Jesus was bringing, true disciples need to see through the eyes of obedience, the revelation of God's design through the very Word of God. In the Bible, you're invited to see through Jesus' eyes. Isn't that amazing? You're invited to see the world, to see reality through the eyes of Jesus because he's given us his word. He is the word. What about you? What about you? Are your eyes fixed on obedience to the word of God? The plan of God? The promises of God? Are your eyes set like flint? on the the promises of God, the plan of God. For as Paul says, we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What are your eyes fixed on? What is your face turned towards? You are not, you are not called to die for the sins of the world. You're not. But each one of us is called to die to our own sin, to die to the flesh, to set our affections not on the things of this world, not the things that this world has to offer because they're only ever transient. You're going to lose them. But what lasts forever, what endures for eternity. So let us ask ourselves this. What competes for your attention now? What is competing right now? What's competing for your attention in your life? What is, what is your gaze fixed on? Where is your face turned to? Where in your life do you know that the Lord is calling you in obedience? That you know the Lord is calling you to obedience. Where in your life is he calling you? And you're resisting. Jesus' eyes were fixed on the glory of obedience. And so must any who seek to follow him. We must be fixed on obedience through the word of God. We have to be as his disciples. But what about the crowd? What about the crowd? What's the perspective of the crowd in our narrative? My, My second point is this. The kingdom of God cannot be discerned through fleshly eyes. Back to verse 46, Mark notes, Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd. I already mentioned above the oddity that in a section on discipleship, Mark would say so little about the 12 disciples. In this pericope or this narrative that we're considering, he barely acknowledges the 12 disciples' presence. He doesn't even mention any of them by name. They are effectively invisible in the rest of the story, seemingly absorbed into the identity of the crowd. But, but who is this crowd? 
And why are they there? Why are they there? To understand what their perspective is, we need to understand why they're even present there. In Mark 14, we learn that the Passover feast is at hand. This is one of the three feasts that Israelites were required to travel to Jerusalem uh, in order to observe and celebrate properly. Therefore, Jews from all over Israel, and even the Roman Empire, would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. For Jews in Israel, especially those who lived in northern Israel, it was common to follow the Jordan, Rift, the Jordan River or the Jordan Rift Valley, the lowest uh, point on, on land, on earth, to follow the river down south uh, till just about the headwaters of the Dead Sea. Then you would cross over, and where you would cross over at was Jericho. Jericho was on the other side. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem with his disciples and a great crowd, and they're leaving Jericho. They've crossed over the Jordan, and the first city they encounter is Jericho. And the party, the, the party that is Jesus' disciples, are not the only one to enter Jericho. There are travelers from all over the Roman Empire coming uh, to Jericho to head up, to take the road up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as they're leaving Jericho, this large entourage, this large party comes upon a blind, blind beggar, which actually was a pretty common sight in Israel. This beggar begins to shout and make a scene, and Mark says in verse 48, and many in the crowd rebuked him, telling him, be silent. In other words, shut up. You're making too much of a scene. Don't make this about you. Yet, when Jesus acknowledges the beggar's cries, the crowd tell, or, uh, he, and tells the crowd in verse 49, he, he says to the crowd, call him, get him. They quickly change their tune and say to the blind man, from, from rebuking him, they then turn and say, ah, oh, take heart. He, he's calling you. Get up. So what's going on here? Are they bipolar? Why the sudden mood swings towards this beggar? I want to suggest that they're perceiving these events through fleshly eyes. To be honest, this has been the, uh, the disciples' moto, uh, modus operandi from the beginning, right? To see things, to see Jesus, to see all that he's doing, all that he's teaching through fleshly eyes. Think back to Peter's confession. What Peter meant by you are the Christ was far removed from what Jesus meant. This is evident in Jesus' sharp rebuke of Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind, or we could say, you're not perceiving the things of God, but the things of man. This is the recurrent problem throughout Act 2 of Mark's Gospel. The disciples cannot comprehend Jesus' repeated teaching about his looming death and resurrection in Jerusalem because they're unwilling to see the reality through God's eyes. But rather, they, they see them only through their human understanding, through their fleshly eyes. This is why they are shocked when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to, to thread the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. And it is why they're caught arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They don't understand what greatness in the kingdom is because they can't see what Jesus is saying. When they look at Jesus, the crowd and the disciples see a man of importance, a teacher, a healer, a miracle worker. 
They see a political contender for the king, or for the title of a king, and he's on his way to the capital to hopefully, in their eyes, seize the throne and oust the Gentiles. A blind beggar on the side of the road? Well, to those with fleshly eyes, this is just an annoyance, a nuisance to be hushed, silenced, and pushed aside. What's interesting to note in this, the last story of uh, Act 2 in Mark's Gospel, is that when Jesus tells the crowd to call the blind beggar, they immediately change their tone towards Bartimaeus. As we already pointed out, they say, take heart, get up, he's calling you. So that's confusing, right? First they are rebuking him and then they're encouraging him. So maybe the disciples are learning. Perhaps they're learning. Perhaps they're getting it. Or maybe because sarcasm is too difficult to, de- uh, to convey in written communication, maybe they're rolling their eyes. After all, when, when, when they say this to, to blind Bartimaeus, after all, he's blind. He can't tell if they're rolling their eyes. Maybe it's all sarcasm. What is revealing in our passage is the crowd is not mentioned after this brief exchange. They disappear. They fade into the background. In fact, it appears they don't even lead this blind man to Jesus, but they leave him to find his way to Jesus. This leads us, the readers, to the suspicion that the disciples in the crowd are still, in many regards, spiritually blind to to the kingdom of God. Spiritually blind. They can't see it. They don't perceive the kingdom of God, so they miss the work of God. You cannot obey what you cannot perceive. Where do you struggle with perceiving only through your fleshly eyes? May May I suggest... We look to areas, again, of disobedience in our lives. Is not our disobedience born out of the soil of rebellion which began in the garden? We think, we think we know better than God. We think we see more clearly than God. And so we obey the lusts of our flesh. True disciples must put to death the desires of their fleshly eyes. We must rebuke the lie of Satan, who continually whispers in our ears, this is all really about you. This is all about you, is the lie that Satan has whispered since the beginning. No, true disciples must see as Jesus saw, must perceive what he perceived, and must obey God's word as Jesus obeyed. Finally, there's the perspective of blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, what a unique character. Not just in this story, but also in all three synoptic gospels. As I mentioned previously, he's the only one whom Jesus heals, in which the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the only one that they name. We meet Bartimaeus on the road leaving Jericho, leading to Jerusalem. Likely, he's anticipating the generosity of Jewish pilgrims who are flocking to the holy city for the Passover feast. Verse 47 says, When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Bartimaeus, he began to cry out. Bartimaeus may be blind, but he's not deaf, right? And surely, while sitting on the side of one of the busiest roads in Israel, he must have heard rumors of this healer from the north. What's interesting is Mark says 
he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, which in the ESV is, is not um, a, 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 an exact rendering of the Greek. Uh, more accurately, translated from the Greek, it says, he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene. Now, this may not seem like a big difference to you, but uh, we must remember that Mark is a masterful storyteller, is he not? For example, Jesus is only identified as a Nazarene one other time in the book of Mark. Curious. The first time is in Mark chapter 1, all the way back in Mark chapter 1, which is in fact the first healing mentioned in the entire book of Mark. In the first instance, a demon is the one who identifies Jesus as a Nazarene. He also identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God. Demons throughout, demons throughout Mark's gospel clearly see divine implications of Jesus' role as Messiah. They have insight that fleshly eyes don't perceive readily. Interestingly enough, as one commentator notes, a similar expression is used of Samson in the book of Judges, at least as it's conveyed to us in the Septuagint. Samson is called a Nazarius Theo, God power, God's powerfully anointed one. Mark's use of the term of Nazarene in the healing stories of 124 in 1047 may also carry the connotation of Jesus' powerful anointing as God. In other words, it seems like Bartimaeus, through the telling of Mark, has insight that others are lacking, especially the disciples. Now in the final healing of Mark's gospel, a blind beggar recognizes Jesus as a Nazarene. Did Bartimaeus make such an astute theological conclusion on his own? Or is this only an example of Mark's masterful storytelling? Well, don't judge too soon. Let's keep reading. Back in verse 47, Mark writes, When Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus' cry, son of David, is another first in Mark's gospel. It's the first and only time in the book of Mark that Jesus is addressed by the title, son of David. An overtly messianic title. So what's going on here? Well, this leads me to my third and final point. Third and final point. True disciples perceive the kingdom through eyes of faith. True disciples perceive the kingdom through eyes of faith. What Bartimaeus lacked in eyesight, he more than compensated for in theological insight. Let me say that again. What Bartimaeus lacked in eyesight, he more than compensated for in theological insight. Bartimaeus perceived through eyes of faith. Blind Bart, if you will, blind Bart, he's not deaf. And when he hears about the miracle worker from the north, a wise man and a biblical, uh, at, 
Sorry, let me say that again. When he hears about the wise man coming from the north as a wise and biblically literate Jew who apparently listened intently to the Hebrew scriptures that were read to him growing up, Bart perceives that Jesus is more than just from a place. He's more than just a Nazarite, one who is dedicated to God, and like Samson's case, one anointed by the Spirit of God. Jesus is more a Nazarene or a Nazarite than he is from Nazareth or a Nazarene. Bart is also the only one in the entire Gospel of Mark to conclude that Jesus is the son of David. And he boldly uses this title to get the attention of Jesus. This title, Son of David, Bartimaeus has in mind the Davidic covenant. God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Where it's written, I will raise up, God speaks to David, I will raise up for you an offspring after you. And I, says Yahweh, will establish his kingdom. And I says Yahweh, will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. And I, says Yahweh, will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me as a son. And my, says Yahweh, steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. We should be thinking, yes, this is the Davidic covenant, these promises made to David's seed, the son that's going to come after him. Doesn't that make you think of what Adam and Eve were supposed to have in the garden? Isn't that what they were? They were supposed to be sons and daughters of God and to abide with him. And his love was to be set on them forever. And yet they turn away. And God says, yes, but I'm bringing another. A son of, of David. A son of David. Perhaps Bartimaeus, again, knowing his Hebrew scripture, connects the, the, the Davidic promise with Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And amid the servant songs of Isaiah, the Lord promises that by the servant of the Lord, he will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. Yahweh says, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness that is before them into light and the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I will do, and I will not forsake them, says the Lord. Isaiah 42, 16. Bart, Bartimaeus, in other words, knows his Bible. And so he will be seen by Jesus, the Nazarene, the son of David. Bartimaeus, or Mark tells us Bartimaeus does not go unnoticed. Now, this is important because if you remember back to our first perspective, Jesus has his fix, face fixed on Jerusalem, set like flint. Nothing is going to stop Jesus from his mission to get to Jerusalem except a blind beggar. Verse 49 is perhaps one of the most powerful verses in all of Mark. Jesus' face is set like flint towards Jerusalem so that others are in awe and wonder and fear at his determination. 
And Mark writes in verse 49, And Jesus stopped. In the Greek, Jesus stood still. Bartimaeus' eyes of faith have stopped Jesus in his tracks. Why? Because Jesus had found a true disciple. Bartimaeus gets it. He may be blind in his fleshly eyes, but as Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians, the eyes of his heart, the eyes of Bartimaeus' heart are keen, and he sees Jesus more clearly than anybody else so far in the Gospel of Mark, even more clearly than the 12 disciples. Look at verses 49 through 51. Jesus calls him to himself, and Bart, contrary to the rich young ruler, throws off his only worldly possession. He springs up and he comes immediately to Jesus. Jesus asks him verbatim the exact same thing Jesus had asked the sons of Zebedee when they came to him, asking for positions of power and of glory to sit at his right hand and his left. They said, Jesus, uh, do for us what we ask of you. And Jesus says, what is it that you ask? What is it that you want me to do for you? Jesus says the same thing to Bartimaeus. What is it you want me to do for you? And Bart says, I want to see. What does he want to see? He wants to see Jesus. The first thing Bartimaeus is going to see when he opens his eyes, when Jesus heals him, is the the face of the son of David, the promised seed, the long-expected one. Bartimaeus, again, an unparalleled sight, says, Rabbi. In the Greek, again, the ESV shortens this, but in the Greek, it is Rabboni, um, which is a, uh, a term that is never used in the book of, of Mark. This is the only time it's used. And it's a, a term that means more than just teacher. One, one commentator, Edwards, again, explains In extent Jewish literature, Rabboni is seldom used with reference to humanity and practically never as a direct address. It frequently is used as an address to God in prayer. However, its use here suggests Bartimaeus's and Mark's estimation of Jesus. For Bart, Jesus is more than a great rabbi among all the rabbi of Israel. For Bart, Jesus is the long-expected promised son of David, Isaiah's root of Jesse, anointed servant of Yahweh. Jesus replies, go your way, your faith has made you well. In Greek, this literally reads, depart, for your faith has saved you. Depart, for your faith has saved you. What an incredible foreshadowing. It's fascinating to note that the difference between the healing of the blind man from Bethsaida and Bartimaeus' healing. If you remember, the first man's healing happened in stages and involved Jesus touching the man as well as spitting on him. Yet here, Jesus doesn't touch Bartimaeus. He doesn't spit on him. He doesn't wave his hands over Bartimaeus' eyes. Jesus doesn't even rebuke the blindness or command Bartimaeus to see. He simply says... Go, Bartimaeus, I release you. Go your way. And Bartimaeus' sight is recovered. Both of these stories, blind men are being healed. These were meant to instruct the disciples on the nature of following Jesus. 
the twelve proved time and time again that they were like the blind man from Bethsaida, slow of sight, because they had little faith. They struggled to see Jesus clearly because they had fleshly eyes that so desperately, so desperately wanted to see Jesus for who he could be to them, what Jesus could do for them as a means of position, power, authority, prestige, wealth. We must be careful to often reflect personally, us personally, reflect on our perspective on Jesus. Who is he? Who is he to you? What is it that you come to Jesus for? What is it you want from Jesus? Jesus says we must come to him like a child, or in the case of Bartimaeus, as a blind beggar. We must continually come to him, ready to abandon all that we might cling to him, that we might long to see his face as he really is. How? How do we become like Bartimaeus, the model of true disciple? A disciple who could see Jesus more clearly than the 12 men who had spent the last three years of their life daily with Jesus. How do we see as Bartimaeus saw? We must train our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to see by faith and not by sight. How? How do we do this? Well, I want to suggest, I want um, to suggest to all of us to remove distractions. What are the things that are preventing you from seeing Jesus for who Jesus says he is? Turn off the podcasts. Shut down your devices. Turn off the screens and meet with Jesus in his word. See his face. Hear his voice. Abide in him. It's what your soul longs for. That's what you're looking for. When you look for everything else, you're looking for him because you want to see him. You want to be near to him. He's your only hope. You have to come to Him. You have to see Him on His ground, on His turf, through His words to see Him clearly like Bartimaeus did. The disciples may have had in Jesus incarnate, but we have, as Brian Chapel writes, Jesus as the Word of God inscripturated. How, how many times have you read the word and thought, man, I wish I could have been one of the disciples? How many times? For three years they had Jesus in the flesh. But we have Jesus fully revealed to us through his word. And it's with you. It's right there. Don't be a blind disciple. They saw him walk on water, but they continually missed him because they only saw with fleshly eyes. Come to him. See him. Abide in him. Follow him. Don't be satisfied with what others have to say about Jesus. Hear this. Not even what we have to say here at Emmaus Road. Right? I, I hope it informs you. I hope we're faithful to declare who Jesus is according to who he says he is. But don't take my word for it. Read your Bibles. Encounter him on your own daily. Spend time with him. Walk with him. Talk with him. Pray to him and see him.
for who he truly is. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you might give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, that we might know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance that we receive as your disciples, that inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe? Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see Jesus like Bartimaeus. That you would give us eyes of obedience like Jesus. And that we might walk faithfully with our faces set like flint on the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that we might be willing to abandon all to follow you. Lord, we want to see you. So rescue us from our unbelief. In the name of Jesus and for your glory, we pray. Amen.